0: Welcome, everybody. You are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. I'm one of your
1: co-hosts, Angela Winfield. And I'm Sharon Brown. Today, we are talking with two of our colleagues. We have Sarah Jeffress, and she's a lecturer in the Department of English, College of Arts and Sciences. And we also have today Mike Bishop, and he is a Director of Student Leadership at the Office of Engagement Initiatives. Welcome, both of you. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: And before we get started, we've got some great questions for you. I know we're going to have a wonderful conversation. Sharon and I do have to regretfully, yes, it hurts my heart, (laughs) to say farewell to our friend and colleague, Cornell Woodson who was your host on this podcast.
1: Yes, he he was my co-host. He brought all kinds of good energy and good conversation to the Inclusive Excellence Academy network of programming that we do. And um, he has regretfully left the university. Well, regretfully for us, right? For, but us, for absolutely. For, for, for yes. him,
0: it's a wonderful move. He is out in California, soaking up the sun, said goodbye to all of these upstate New York winters, <laughs> and is doing global diversity and inclusion at a startup there. So we're yes. really proud and excited for him.
1: Yes, I am. And he'll be back, right?
0: Yes. He promised us. He he's promised.
1: Been, he promised. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> And I know he's listening to this, so they put it out be. there to the world. Come back and visit. So we
0: have, again, we have Mike Bishop and Sarah Jeffries, Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Could you tell us? So, Sarah, and we introduced you, we know you are a lecturer here in English, but I also know that you are a poet,
2: author, and mama. Yeah? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about yourself? Well, I was raised in Virginia and I grew up in a really small house where the lights were rarely on and I was always hungry, but I had books. And um, books were the things that saved me. So I often got fed at the church, but my mom, who is a wild, interesting woman and a wonderful woman who did the best she could, gave me Langston and Emily Dickinson really early. So I read early and I knew that books were the way that I could get out of Virginia and get out of the situation that I was in very early on. So I think that is what, in fact, would be one of the many things that made me a poet moving on. I'm a mama of two girls. They are 13 and 9, and I feel deeply honored to raise powerful feminists in this day and age. And I have two books of poetry. One is called Forgetting the Salt, and the other is What Enters the Mouth. And I have other collections forthcoming. Wonderful. And
0: Mike, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from?
3: I grew up in this region on the other side of the Finger Lakes and in a very small community, Mount Morris, New York. And my family has very deep roots there. And it really growing up in that small town gave me a sense of what community means. Mm. My grandmother was one of several siblings who all settled in that county. And so growing up, I always had first cousins, second cousins, third cousins in my classrooms. And thinking about how tight-knit the community was, if one was white and straight and a man (laughs) and so on. And on the other hand, it opened my eyes to uh, folks who were definitely other in that small town. And so I brought with me a lot of those experiences uh, in my travels from Boston to Oakland, now back to this area, And it's really helped shape how I think about community and my work in supporting students in getting involved in their off-campus communities here at Cornell.
0: Well, that is wonderful. And you know, this podcast is about diversity and inclusion. And we usually do a question of the day. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mike, you've already started to take us there. You've mentioned, you know, being white, straight, and male. So our question for today is... Does diversity and inclusion really include white people? And before you answer, I have one question for both of you, since no one can see us. <laughs> How do you identify in terms of diversity and inclusion? What are, your, you know, what are your pronouns? How do you describe yourself? What are some of the labels that you get that? Yeah.
3: My pronouns are he, him, his. I consider myself an anti-racist organizer when I'm not working at Cornell. And so I'm very active in my local communities. I mentioned race and gender and sexuality, but I also believe that coming from a middle-class background, being raised Catholic, I had certain advantages and privileges, unearned benefits uh, that I continue to unpack in my life. And so I've been fortunate to have met mentors along the way who have supported me in thinking about my role in supporting students and being active in communities. And I definitely think there's a place for folks from privileged backgrounds to be in conversations, especially when we're asked to. And at the same time, I, I believe that it's my responsibility to support those who do come from so called dominant backgrounds uh, in this country, meaning white or middle class or Christian and so on, uh, to support them. And educate those of my own kind, so to speak, because I think it's imperative that uh, folks with privilege are in these conversations, partly for the benefit of all communities, but partly for my own benefit, including ensuring that morally, spiritually, intellectually, that I am trying to be the best I can in the world but also that I have a responsibility based on the mentors who have supported me, the people who've invested in me, to be a part of conversations like this.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's incredible. Question for you, though, because you said that you, know, you benefit from this as well. What benefit do you get from doing this work?
3: So many. Uh, I feel connected to a larger community. And so as one example, I'm a volunteer with the Multicultural Resource Center, I've been spending a lot of evenings the past few months there. Mm -hmm. And just this past Monday left a very powerful conversation. And oftentimes I find that that is grounding for me. It Mm -hmm. helps me connect with folks who I wouldn't normally come in contact with if I just let the inertia of my day-to-day life carry me down the river. Mm -hmm. And so I think that whatever system we could call it, does a very good job of keeping us isolated from each other. And it takes a little extra effort to put ourselves in contact across these differences of race or ethnicity or and so on. And so doing the work that I do in supporting students to get off campus, I also often find that I find solutions to my challenges in community, and I could bring those back to campus and then work with students in a new, more powerful way. Mm -hmm. And so my personal involvement has definitely benefited my effectiveness as as a professional in this area. That's
1: the perfect example of walking the walk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trying to. That's that's (laughs) That's
2: wonderful. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. So my pronouns are she and her, and I've been thinking a, a great deal about Diversity and inclusivity, particularly in relationship to intersectionality, which is how I come to the table um, with that same question. Mm -hmm. So, I think deeply that we all exist in both places of privilege and oppression, often at the same time. And so, if we ask the question around diversity and inclusion, I think we're also asking a question around intersectional identities. So, when I'm asked to come to the table, around diversity and inclusion that's a white woman. As a white woman. Mm -hmm. um, as a white bisexual woman, that's where I come to the table. um, and saying how does one's sexual identity intersect with one's gender, which intersects with one's race, which intersects with one's class, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I could also say as a bisexual, first gen low-income woman from the South, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Who's a single mama? Like, if you want to add all those things Mm -hmm. on to the identity piece, I think our identities are really complicated and complex, and we can't ask questions around diversity and inclusion unless we're looking at all of the parts of the identity, both the visible and the invisible Mm -hmm. ones. So how did you first, like,
0: dip your toe? into this diversity and inclusion space. You know, in the work that we do, you know Sharon, you know oftentimes, like don't we hear like people are nervous.
1: Yes, that comes up a lot. That comes up a lot mm-hmm. as um, people who are involved in diversity and inclusion conversations, depending on the label that they wear, uh, or maybe even how they present, they are nervous about having conversations because diversity inclusion, it can be uncomfortable, it can be a little hard. And especially in your place of employment, it feels like there's some risk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And they may not see themselves in the conversation. So, you
2: know,
0: for you, I know, I'm not going to say you speak for all white people, because you don't, <laughs> <laughs> right, right? You speak for yourselves. Right. But as, you know, members of the majority in terms of phrase,
2: how did you dip your toe in? Well, that's a great uh, question. I think I would say first books, right, in terms of the sense of, okay, my mom said, here's Emily Dickinson, here's Langston Hughes, here are speeches by Martin Luther King. So like very early, um, knowing all different kinds of communities, I grew up in southern Virginia in a weird place called Colonial Williamsburg, Mm -hmm. where... Many people dressed up and pretended to be British to reenact colonial America. So my first understandings of diversity and inclusion and questions around race came uh, steeped in 18th century history and in colonialism. Um, So that's sort of where I first got it intellectually, where I first... Also, I would say my mom had a really, really good friend who was a mechanic, and so he would often take me to uh, his church. And in that moment, I was the little white girl in the Black Baptist Mm -hmm. Church. But I also knew for him to hang out with my mom deeply would have cost him his life in Virginia at that time. So obviously, because in that moment, he was a man of color, but my mom moved us between both communities. So it's a question, right, of asking, like, when did I choose to do the work of diversity, mm-hmm. but also when did I understand race and class and diversity and inclusion early on, mm-hmm. right? I think where I grew up has a huge part of that. For me, also, I would say that diversity inclusion inclusion... Um, are asking questions about race and able bodiedness and that people may be nervous. I think they are nervous because you're asking questions about power. Mm -hmm. Were you nervous when you when you started like this progression of of like, you know, you know,
0: I want to go there, right? So when you were a little girl and you were that little white girl in the black church. Right. Was I nervous? What did that
2: feel like? Did you know at that point? I it didn't feel I did not feel nervous. I felt Welcomed, but I also remember wondering, his name was Roosevelt, I remember wondering what other people thought of him to bring a white woman and a white child into a black Baptist church in the 80s in the South. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I wondered how that felt for him mm-hmm. um, and what his sisters thought of that, right? Mm-hmm. But we were in a church, so everyone was, like, incredibly welcoming. Mm-hmm. I was not nervous. I think moments, like, I teach freshman writing, right? So diversity for me is also about bringing a v- like, vast amount of texts, that come from, you know, a bunch of different authors from a whole different amount of communities. I don't think I get nervous. I have students who push back. Mm -hmm. I have students who say, why are we talking about issues of race? Why are we talking about issues of class? Why are we talking about issues of gender? I came to ask about the semicolon. Right? Right? Like, I came to ask about the comma. (laughs) Dr. Jeffress, I came to ask about the comma. That semicolon is a gateway conversation. <laughs> exactly, right? And, and you're giving me, and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to take Tanahashi Coates' text, and then we're going to look at the grammar. And so I was not nervous. Mm-hmm. I was aware that I had students, when I have taught at different places, push back. Um, mm-hmm. Not here at Cornell, but in other places, really push back. Mm-hmm. Um and really ask questions for me about, you know, what does it mean to be an immigrant? What does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean, mm. why are you teaching these texts? I ask mm-hmm. that question of myself all the time. That's right, Right? Yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. like what permission do I have to teach mm-hmm. a variety of voices? Okay, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. <laughs> yes, we're going to get to that.
0: This is juicy stuff. Now, Mike, how did you dip your toe in?
3: I think it was through my first career working with court committed youth Mm -hmm. that uh, I saw right away that the staff that I was a part of, the professional staff, we were very different from the demographics of the youth that we were working with. Looking backward, and this is what I encourage students to do all the time, is to integrate their experiences. There's that experience working in rural Missouri, in in Washington, D.C., working with youth on probation, and really then. It took me a while to make sense of even some childhood experiences that I had as well. Mm. And similarly, I was fortunate that my family was befriended by an African-American family as as we were growing up. And as one example, I I was fortunate to spend time with some of the the siblings, the son who was about my age. And here's just one example where the son's nickname was Man. And I asked my parents, "What? why is his nickname Man? And they said, well, his parents want to make sure no one ever calls him Boy. Mm-hmm. And I thought as a 12, 13-year-old, like, well, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of that. And yeah. so that's where, again, being fortunate to have folks in my life who, teaching by example, or just being in my life, planted seeds that later have been bearing tremendous fruit. Mm-hmm. I've made some incredible mistakes in mm-hmm. getting involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been in large lecture rooms in university diversity trainings and asked a question and and had a response that I felt was, you know, I took to heart and I was uh, thinking that, well, that wasn't a fair response. But then after thinking about it, I thought,
1: well, no, wait, actually, mm-hmm. who was
3: I to ask that particular question or make that particular comment? And mm-hmm. so... As I've dipped my toes, as I've gotten more involved, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've been willing to hang in there mainly because of the support of mentors who've encouraged me Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. stick with this work and ultimately to see that race is central to the work that I do in communities Mm now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's only through, um, again, being exposed along the way to difference, to friends, now lifelong friends, um, and hanging in there even when I've made mistakes.
0: Because we all make
1: mistakes, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> we do, we do. And, and do you, you feel like, although you've been at this work for a long time, that there are still moments where you're like, you feel like you're still dipping your toe, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though we submerge ourselves in the subject matter, in the diversity, right. inclusion work and conversation, there's still some areas that are still new to us, even in 2018, you know, just learning the new terminologies and things like that. And, I find that for me, I'm always learning. I am always, mm. you know, learning a different intersectionality mm-hmm. that I never even thought about before. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: so I, I love that whole process. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like, I don't know that I've been doing this a long time and that right? I have a lot to <laughs> learn right? exactly. uh, around intersectionality, but also around that idea that we all carry our individual and historical selves into the room. Uh, yes, we do. And that people may read our historical selves first, Right? And so because I my energy is very warm and I'm very outgoing and I trust deeply, I recognize that not everyone will meet me with the same amount of trust because of um, because I'm a white woman.
1: Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And
2: to not even expect people to meet me immediately with that same amount of trust right away, right? Um and not just in making a mistake about how much trust is given or earned or when it can be earned, but also that same sense of I may be read as a white woman first. Right. Right? Mm-hmm versus a mama or a poet or um, a woman who's, you know, so proud to be first gen, like those kinds of things that may be in the forefront of my identity may not be the way that I am interpreted, right? And those um, can create great moments of conversation, but also confusion, that makes sense.
3: And I'll just add, students have been some of my greatest teachers.
2: Oh, yes. yes. And
3: especially where I'm encouraging students to step off campus, so there's often a cultural divide between communities that our universities are located in and the wider community. And as I supported students serving in New Orleans for 10 years, at a certain point, we had tremendous success and had two students leading our trip to the Lower Ninth Ward, the historical Black community there, which had the highest rate of Black homeownership in the nation before Hurricane Katrina. And these two young men, when some challenges came up, called me in in a very powerful way and helped me to see that even though it wasn't my intent i was having a very devastating impact on them and their community and i'm grateful to both uh, anthony and daniel for that and Mm -hmm. and we worked through that thankfully that they were willing to work through that and again you know what i'm going to ask okay (laughs) (laughs) tell us about this what what happened uh, so at, what happened was uh, at many organizations on the ground working around racial justice issues or working with working class folks are hanging on my thread. Mm-hmm. And so that was the case in New Orleans. And there was a particular organization there that I was connected with through a mentor in the Oakland Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so I had an inside track. And knowing as the students were coordinating this trip for 12 of their peers for a week over winter break... Mm-hmm that what they were communicating and what I was hearing from on the ground were very different stories. And so as I realized at a certain moment that in order for the professionally speaking, I I put uh, on the balance the safety of the participants, not seeing that the impact it was going to have for me to remove these two men from leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And they told me very clearly when we sat down in a cafe that, Mike, but what this looks like is you as a white administrator removing us as African-American men from a trip we had established with other African-American students that this is a case of injustice that we're actually trying to remedy in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. So uh, people stepped up, uh, stepped into leadership roles, and the trip was, we did make the trip happen, Um but it was a learning experience for me. It really shook me because it was one of those, uh, I, I thought I knew how to move in this space. Mm. And yet here I was making a very, I would say, grievous mistake that fortunately the, the two of them were gracious with me around that.
0: And what helped you move through that? Like what, what tools or techniques did you use to, you know, not give up? Mm.
3: Part of it was sitting with the discomfort. And, and now there's this notion of avoid fragility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and so the how easy it could be for me to remove myself from conversations because of my privilege and say, well, I'm just not going to do this work anymore. I have that, that in and of itself is a privilege. And so part of it as well was the fact that I had found some mentors who had really supported me along the way. And so I was able to turn to them and say, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. Did I really overstep here? And so uh, I mentioned, you know, my mentors, Sharon Martinez, Tim Thomas, and others here, like Cal Walker, I would put on that Mm -hmm. list and Fabina Colon and folks who support my development. Mm -hmm. And so having those trusted folks to turn to that, I've established relationships with, and that's what's kept me in it, is the personal relationships. And knowing that I have my mentors behind me now, even while I'm speaking, Mm -hmm. and it's not just because of a professional role I'm in, it's the relationships that I've developed with folks that keep me in this conversation. Mm
0: What about you, Sarah?
2: What keeps me in the conversation? Yeah, yeah. and
0: and, yeah, what keeps you in?
2: Um, What keeps me in? I love, 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 love teaching. So if I bring the text, for example, Citizen by Claudine Rankin, um, I'm not sure if you guys know that text. Um, It's an incredible poetry, theory, cultural criticism text, and we do class discussions about it. I ask the personal question, who am I to bring a Jamaican-American poet to these students? and who am I to talk about it? But Mm -hmm. I also ask the question, where do they become the teachers in the classroom? And because I believe in a culturally responsive um, pedagogy, because I believe in shared authority in the classroom, many of them get very excited about the text, because there is something about Serena Williams, and then there's something Mm -hmm. about basketball, and then there's poetry criticism, and then there's historical criticism. And so, I stay in the work because I can stay in it through literature and through those really power- Sorry, I get powerful moments in the classroom where the student says, I didn't realize that about fill in the blank, about citizenship, about sexual mm. orientation, about the female body, about the historical mm-hmm. oppression of the female body, um, I didn't realize that before I came to this text and now Mm. I see it differently. So those moments where their individual self and the historical self come together, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I stay in it for, and I do also, much like Mike, feel greatly responsible for helping other young white women, especially who seem to be often blind to their positions of privilege, um, to ask questions about privilege and ownership and inclusion and what doors they are opening or closing for others. So I stay in the work because it feels I, have a, I feel like I have a responsibility to it because of teaching and because of language. I think if we're going to ask questions about power and change, we have to ask really hard questions that no one else wants to talk about. Yes. Mm. <laughs> and there,
1: there's so much power yeah. in making the hard questions not so hard. You know, there's power in... Yes, there's an initial jolt when you hear a subject matter that's like, ooh, that, that I'm revealing too much about myself, or ooh, I'm afraid. But once you get past that fear or past that sense of vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, and you can speak honestly because, like Mike said, you have built a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not just um, I'm sitting here in judgment and I'm going to ask you all these questions. It's because we have a rapport. There's a right. relationship that has been cultivated. So that makes the conversations mm-hmm. less and less uncomfortable to have. Mm-hmm. And that's when we can really get to a, a level of understanding mm-hmm. ourselves and those that we impact. Right.
0: And, and, I mean, going back to Mike's version of the point, I mean, there are personal gratifying benefits mm-hmm. that make us more effective as not only professionals, mm-hmm. but people. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly like at Cornell here, where it's so diverse, and we've got you know a wide swath of the population and all different aspects of diversity here. You know, how do we engage in that? And I think the two of you have shared some really great insights and uh, about your experience and your journey in the path. Is as our kind of final thought here because we could keep talking. <laughs> <all> <laughs> afternoon, I kind of got right, a sense. Right. Um, what are your kind of final thoughts? to our audience, our colleagues out there um, in the university about, you know, white people being a part of the conversation and, and, and does diversity and inclusion really include white people?
3: A friend of mine recently shared with me and I was fortunate to know uh, HIP and HIP said, you know, we're going to be fine. We, we African-Black folks, we're going to be fine. It's you white folks who need to do something about what's going on in this country. <laughs> Seriously. Right? And so, uh, and you know, that's coming from someone who's built strong community around himself. Um, but I think there's something to that, that that I'll call it white supremacy culture. It's, it's something that's been initiated, that's maintained mainly by folks who consider themselves to be white and we can dissect what whiteness is. But a few things that I've learned from from doing this work, from being active and from finding support is the importance of being visible and the importance of being accountable. Mm -hmm. And so as I think about, is it my role to be visible or is it my role to create space for others to be visible in this case? Mm -hmm. And especially when I'm doing work in communities and organizationally to be accountable. And I think part of how that is done is by making affirmative statements that this is why I do this work and not letting it go unexplained or or just have it be taken for granted by showing up that's simply enough. I think there's tremendous power in folks with skin privilege in making those sort of affirmative statements about this is why I'm in this space. This is why this work is important to me. This is why I do diversity and inclusion work. And so those are a few thoughts that I think about that get at the root of, of why I, I continue to to. To put my time and energy into not only doing this work here at Cornell, but in my my unpaid time in the community as well.
2: We appreciate it. Yes, we do. One thought I had was I often ask myself, how can I contribute to this work by writing? So when those conversations are hard in the classroom, we spend a lot of time writing. And I feel like the more we start writing about issues around diversity and inclusion, then conversations can come from that. So writing is sort of a safe space to begin. Yes. So I think about that for colleagues, right, who mm-hmm. are like, I'm afraid or I'm nervous or I don't know how to approach the subject in my classroom. I often have writing exercises for them, if they want to find me, um, <laughs> to get students to um, <laughs> writing about it. She's offering yes, Sarah to get them writing, <laughs> of course, To get them writing, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, regardless of the discipline, right? And then the second thing I wanted to say is um, I was thinking about what you said about white supremacy culture, and I do feel deeply that it part of its like spit or root is to keep me isolated and mm. quiet and so in my resistance to white supremacy and white culture i will ask the hard questions and i will also reach to create spaces for people who may mm. not have been asked to speak mm. yeah. So I know I said that was the final question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a good but conversation. It is a
0: wonderful conversation. But here's what I'm thinking. Right? How do you feel like you're not giving something up? Mm. You know, you've got this privilege as a white person, but you're resisting it and you're mm. you're creating space for people who don't have that privilege and for the right. other and you've embraced it and you've expressed right. it so right. well. How do you do that? Where, what keeps you going? I don't even know how to ask the question. Mm. <laughs> but do you see where I'm going with this? How, how, how do you do that as a very
3: person? I, it gets to that phrase that I heard about a couple of years ago when you're used to privilege, equality looks like oppression. Oh,
0: I heard
3: that. And yes. so, it, I mean, on the one hand, taking a long view, a historical context about where we are and how we've gotten to this point, and rather than thinking about that I'm giving something up, that I'm actually becoming more whole. Mm-hmm. I'm restoring my humanity mm-hmm. by ensuring that I'm, while well, I'm a part of this system and in some ways consciously or subconsciously I'm contributing to it, I'm also resisting as much as I can. And, and so rather than look at it as a deficit and giving something up, um, I often talk with my students about, there's a lot of different ways of being busy. There's busy that drains your energy and there's busy that gives you energy. And so, if at the end of a lot of activity you have more energy, there's something about that that's Mm -hmm. saying, you know, it's aligning with your spirit and your purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, even though it is, you know, this work, it can be grueling, it can be exhausting, it can be tiring. That's the reason to have groups around us to support us. And yet, through that work, as I mentioned at the Multicultural Resource Center, spending a lot of evenings there, but I walk away more energized. I walk away feeling like I am refusing to go along with the current, and I'm going to try to make some effort, especially if I'm doing that with others, to restore our our shared humanity. And so that's, you know, this wider view, I think, is one one way I try to keep in perspective. And my partner is very gracious, ensuring that I have this time to contribute to the community. And she knows that it's important not only to me, but to us, our community, our region, our state, Mm -hmm. our nation, Mm -hmm. our world. It's
0: bigger than just
2: yeah um how do you feel like you're not giving something up I I don't I don't think in terms of deficit I think in terms of abundance so if I'm if I'm giving something up or it would mean that I would have had it in the first place right Mm -hmm. or that it belonged to me and while I understand that white privilege will allow me to walk around a store and not be Followed it that it will get me into rooms or into doors or into universities or into jobs. While I understand all of those places of privilege, I also feel deeply that I have an opportunity in each one of those moments to ask who else is there? How many other doors have been opened for people who don't look like me? How many other doors? have been opened for people who don't sound like me, who don't speak like me. Like Those are those moments, right? In that exact moment when I am given privilege, if I ask, how do I feel like I'm not giving something up? Or I ask, who else is standing with me? Or who else can I bring along? Um, Toni Morrison said, of course, we are not free unless we pull uh, the people up next to us. So I don't I don't know how to think of myself in that individual space mm-hmm. of, oh, I'm going to give something up. Mm-hmm. I don't think the thing that I'm giving up is anything I ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Even as I know, yeah. even yeah. as I know yeah. that mm-hmm. it is given to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at each of those moments when I am receiving a privilege that it is actually a moment of choice for me mm-hmm. to look around and ask who else is receiving this privilege and call it a privilege okay. in that yeah. moment which often makes people uncomfortable um, <laughs> and keeps Not me, me yeah. <laughs> but and call it a privilege right okay. um, which leads to discussion um, and sometimes makes people uncomfortable because people want to keep the idea of privilege quiet mm-hmm. right and that's what I meant by sort of calling out the moments. Mm-hmm.
1: There, there's definitely that, that need for self-awareness. You know, we go through our lives, there are certain things that are very natural and easy for us because we've never had to think otherwise. But when we are in a situation where we have to pay attention, we have to be very aware of what we are going through, that's when we can see where the privilege is happening. Yes, We can see yeah. the deficits and, and the other yes. things that that are around us.
0: And the other thing that I'm hearing is that it's, about more than just us individually, that we are a community, that we're a community, and that there's enough freedom, there's enough power, there's enough to go around, that we're not really giving anything up. Right, right. Like,
2: as soon as you said that, I was like, there is more more than enough. There's more than enough. Unfortunately we don't have any more time <laughs>
0: but this is has been a wonderful conversation and I want to thank you both for being visible yes. um, mm-hmm. and being a voice for diversity and inclusion here
1: Thank you for sharing your stories and bringing your authentic selves to the conversation because that's always what we ask mm-hmm. of our Cornell folks yes, yes. Um, thank you for, for the us. opportunity Sweet. it's been and, really wonderful and thank you all for listening We will be back We will be back and we'll put out when we are coming back. So keep an eye on our website, diversity.cornell.edu and look for Inclusive Excellence Network. It's our academy, it's our podcast, and it is our summit. Until next time, have a great day.